Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of High Performance at Hawthorne Football Club in the AFL, Andrew Russell. Thanks for tuning in to episode 170 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So delighted this morning to get on Andrew Russell, who is the Director of High Performance at, uh, at Hawthorne in AFL. So Andrew has been involved in a number of AFL Grand Finals and lucky to uh, lucky to win it on, on numerous occasions. So it was great to get him on, uh, some with his background. So I heard Andrew speak uh, with Darren Burgess at Leaders uh, the Leaders Conference in London, pre uh, back end of 2017, November and December, and it was really interesting to hear them to kind of riff on 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 their philosophies and the the things that they do or don't do uh, in certain times of the season, especially pre-season, given that them guys uh, were in the thick of it at that point. And one thing that was really interesting was uh, something that Sean Dyche, the manager of Burnley, also said was every pre-season that they have at least one day where sports science goes out the window, GPS doesn't get worn, RP doesn't get taken, heart rate doesn't get measured, and they just see where the players are at mentally. So it was a really interesting discussion uh, with Andrew about this um, and how Sean Dyche described it as gaffer's day, where he basically does what he wants and absolutely annihilates the players. So it was really interesting to see the rationale behind that and what it actually tells Andrew in that pre-season period of where his players are at. So as well as that, uh, we discuss uh, lots of things in terms of uh, sharing data across AFL, the importance of sleep and looking at uh, numerous psychological factors which may affect his guys um, across the season. And also the two influential books that, that Andrew picked out as, as the ones that have influenced uh, his career the most? Um, I personally um, don't care <laughs> what, um, what others are doing in the AFL industry. And um, um, there are so many factors that cause performance and, um, and how far they run and you know, how fast they run and all those is one of those. But it's very specific to the playing group that you're working with. I'm looking at, I'm looking at comparing our data to, you know, to our players. Um, we have some players that I, I want to run less in a game. They're more effective when they run less. I've got other players that are most effective when they cover a huge amount of ground. Other players, you know, I want them to cover less ground, but their intensity needs to be right up. But just before we do get into the chat with Andrew, I just want to say a massive thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and Human Track for sponsoring this episode today. So if you are interested in either of them three products or seeing them uh, in action, potentially get a demo of, of these products, uh, head over to valdperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. Also sponsoring this episode is Forstex. So if you are looking for a hardware and software solution when it comes to force plates and the software, head over to forcedex.com, but also tune in to episode 139 of the podcast, so strengthofscience.com forward slash 139. And co-owner of Forstex, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into all sorts of detail 
on jump monitoring and the use of uh, force decks. So certainly not a sales pitch, but definitely gets into a lot of detail with regards to jump monitoring if, uh, if that's what you're doing with your guys and girls uh, and is an interest. So if you are interested, forcedex.com and on Twitter at forcedex. So thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the up and coming episode with Andrew and I will speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning I have the pleasure in speaking to Director of High Performance at Hawthorne FC, Andrew Russell. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Hi Rob, how are you going? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Um, anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of um, of background on you um, and, and maybe a little bit of uh, like we chatted about before with the the slight changing role at Hawthorne, what you're currently doing, what you were doing before, education, um, everything about you. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, look, I um, you know, I started as a as an athlete. I was a middle distance runner. Um, then my work life started straight from university at the Victorian Institute of Sport, and um, during my time there, I, I got a position at Essendon Football Club, um, working with John Quinn and Kevin Sheedy was the coach at that time. Um, and then when I was um, 23 years of age, Port Adelaide Football Club approached me to um, run run the conditioning program there, which um, I decided to take up in uh, my very, very inexperienced um, state that I was in, but I had a crack at it. And um, during that time, I, I also uh, did some postgraduate psychology studies because I was thinking, um, for me, um, I thought that's the way sport was going to have an understanding of the athlete's mind and, and brain and how they function and motivation was um, was critical. So instead of doing, you know, postgraduate, masters, um, PhD, I decided to go down a completely different path, um, which I'm extremely glad that I have. And since then, I have continued to educate myself. Um, extensively um, in that area. Um, so I spent four years at Port Adelaide Football Club before I then went to Hawthorne Football Club and I've been there ever since in my role. Um, uh, my role is very oh, – it's, it's changed um, as of this season and um, instead of just being, you know, across the conditioning and medical areas, which I have been for the last 12 or 13 years, I'm – the role is now broadened and I'm no longer sort of doing the minute-to-minute -minute operations, conditioning, making decisions about what players are, are doing um, in that space and I'm broadened it now to working more with the coaching group, um, more in the leadership space, um, the academy area, um, whilst also, you know, having um, my finger in the pie and conditioning and medical um, so I have really the ability to dive into any area in the football department now and um, get involved and make sure that our practices are, um, are of a high standard across everything we do and ultimately it's pulling it all together so everyone in the football department is, um, is on the same page and that's something I've always strived to do in my role and, um, you know, even in the role in conditioning and medical, I've... I've I've really worked hard to make sure that our language across the whole, you know, between the players, um, conditioning, me medical and administration has been really strong um, and that the messaging, you know, is 
is completely the same. So the players don't know essentially where the message is coming from half the time, whether it's coming from, you know, the coach, whether it's coming from assistant coaches, whether it's coming from me, whether it's coming from the doctor, um, that we're all part of the decision-making. We're all as important as each other in the decision-making process. How do you make sure that's the case? How do you how do you ensure um, that message is coming from all different angles, but it's all the same? Well, we work really hard. We have uh, we, we first of all work out what is the issue that we're dealing with, and that could be it doesn't matter what that issue is. Um, who are the key players in that issue, um, and then who do we need to be part of the decision? So, if it's an athlete injury, it's easy. It's, it's the doctor, it's the physio, it's it's myself and the player. And then we need to bring the coach into that and then football administration. If it is more of an issue around um, behaviour, then that issue uh, will be maybe the football manager, maybe the coach, and then we need to, um, you know, send that message out to the other relevant people in the football department. They, you know, we really work on the strategy about every single one and work out who needs to be involved, when they need to be involved and how they need to be involved. And then my role is getting across all those people in both a formal setting but more importantly informally to make sure that everyone has complete understanding of the issue and and um, and how we're going to solve it. And, you know, within that, the absolute primary focus is the player at all times. You know, they are the complete centre point. We put them ahead of everything, um, ahead of anyone's ego, who makes the decision. We don't care who makes the decision at Hawthorne. We don't care who gets the credit for making the decision at Hawthorne. But we are, um, you know, completely obsessed with making sure that the right decision is made for that player at that time, and um, and anything else or any egos are dealt with as they need to be along the way. Mm-hmm. So five five premierships in your in your career uh, in in your current role. <clears throat> what are the common what are the commonalities that you've seen? I mean, this may tap into your post-grad psychology uh, pursuits, but what, what, are the, what are the commonalities in terms of culture, in terms of kind of how the, how the club's been run? Has anything been different from when you have been successful and periods that you, where you haven't been as successful? Well, the, the, the absolute key thing is stability within your football department, and I mean um, uh, stability in terms of coaching, stability in terms of administration, um, stability medical, stability conditioning, um, stability in the playing group, um, that, you know, people want people want to feel um, like people are authentic around them, that they're safe, um, that things are under control. So it's, it's minimising stress as much as you can around the players so they can focus completely on getting the job done. Um, I think that every area in the football department needs to be run at a, at a, at a reasonably good level. Um, you don't need to be absolutely exceptional in any area, but you need to be very good in all areas and not have a weak spot um, within your football club. If you have a weak spot, even though you might have some areas that are, ex- that, you know, are being run extremely well, if you have a weak spot within your organisation, then it's going to be very, very difficult to be successful. Um, and, you know, and ultimately – the clubs that I've been at, we like to put ourselves in a position um, to be successful, and then we understand there are a lot. You know, there are greater forces acting as well. You don't just um, coach well, manage well, condition well to have success. There is always an element of luck um, 
in sport. And, um, and so I think you need to appreciate that. And, um, it's, it's a bit of a contradiction. You need to take the, you know, you need to take the process and everything you do extremely seriously, but, um, but the outcome, not that seriously, um, which is very difficult to do. But if you can get that, then your levels of stress are going to be, uh, very much more controlled within your organization. Mm-hmm. Is there any influences out there in business or in other teams or anything that you've kind of gone to visit or something, anything like that that has really influenced how you want your department and club to feel and to, to look from the outside? Um, I wouldn't say there's any one, any one um, sporting club or business. Um, what we have done and, you know, our head coach Alistair Clarkson has been um, – extremely strong in traveling the world and seeing different organizations um, and I have as well and that we really try and get our people out a lot and diversify into different organizations and come back with bits and pieces that they do really, really well. Um, you know, we've been very accepted into our organization over the years and, um, and we've been accepted into a lot of organizations over the years. So, you know, I think we're I think we're quite good at just taking what they do really really well and applying that within our club. You know, we're we're happy to get it from anywhere, anyone, and anywhere to make us better. Um, we're really on the search um, and the lookout for making things better from whatever source we can get it from. Mm-hmm. Cool. So one thing in my uh, stalking of you online, there was quite a little, well, quite a bit. Um, I think maybe on a presentation that you did a couple of years ago on um, different streams of data and kind of making um, understanding complex problems through the use of simple data. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to touch on that because obvious. I think that was back in 2015. So obviously things have moved on unbelievable amounts since then anyway. Um, but just to get a, a, a sense of how you view the amounts of data that you're collecting and trying to make sense of um, and maybe what you have confidence in and what you actually value as the director of high performance um, and what kind of goes up the chain and what doesn't well, well from a well, from a conditioning and medical point of view um i mean we we monitor extremely closely um days you know days of training days missed of training through through whatever issue it is and look for trends over time um, so our pre-season data is more important than our in-season data. Um, obviously, in-season data, you know, your, your performance is how you're ultimately measured and, um, and number of injuries, um, but, there's a, but it's a lot more complex than that. Um, pre-season, you know, days missed to certain injuries, we look at really closely from a, from a day-to-day operation, um, I mean, we, we take RPEs, but I, I am interested in them, but not overly interested in them. Um, I mean, today, for instance, we trained. It was extremely warm this morning. It was extremely humid, um, and their perception of the session was a lot harder than, than what it really was. Um, so because of that, even though the perception of the effort or the session was hard, I know that they'll recover um, quite well. Um, as soon as they rehydrate and they get out of that hot and humid environment. Um, I certainly don't use RPEs to work out what our load was for the day. I don't believe in it. Um, from, a, you know, from, a load, from a load perspective, the data, um, I look at very basic GPS data. I look at distance run, not distance covered. Um, we look at uh, 
um, a threshold distance. We look at a, a red zone running distance and um, and variations of that, and we look at accelerations and decelerations. I'm looking for trends in the data. I'm not looking for absolute specifics. I don't care whether they do 700 metres or 880 metres in the red zone or whether they have 49 decels or 56 decels. It's just a trend. It just shows you that it's in the ballpark somewhere. Um, and um, so I look at a combination of factors when I'm looking the load for the day. Um, I When I'm getting monitoring data from the athletes, there's essentially four things that I look at um, and two of them are psychological variables. I think they're far more important than any physical variables. Um, so coping or stress is one. Um, motivation of the athlete is the second one. Um, body fatigue, um, their perception of body fatigue is the third one and sleep is the fourth one. Um, and I think that sleep is probably um, – sleep is such a critical one. The challenge with sleep is that we know from the research that their perception of how they slept and how they actually did sleep is different. So just because they perceive that they had poor sleep doesn't mean they did and just because they perceive they had a good sleep doesn't mean that they did have a good sleep. So that's a, that's a, that's a genuine challenge for all of us in the sleep space. Um, but those four variables there, I, I – um, I look at a recovery number and I, I add those two uh, sorry I add those four together that gives me a recovery number um, on any particular day and then I look at the trend over the whole group so I'm looking for group trends is, is the group handling the this training that we're giving them um, and then is the individual within that group um, handling the training or not um, and or well, and and in essence it's much more complex than whether they're handling the training or not. You know, I, I use a formula when the players come in and I talk about high performance is how you train and how you live and how you think. Um, so the training is one aspect of their life and they train for anywhere from, you know, two to five hours a day. But there's a long, I call it under the red line, you know, there's a lot of time under the red line and what are you doing with the rest of your day? Um, what are your thoughts the rest of the day? What are your recovery practices the rest of the day? Who are you hanging out with the rest of the day? What are you eating the rest of the day? Um, how much are you sleeping the rest of the day? Um, we'll have a major determinant on the quality that you come back the next day to train with. So, um, so they're the things that um, they're the main things that have um, that have held us in really good stead, and it's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. So, on them psychological factors, apart from your personal viewpoint that they're maybe more important than the than the other two. Is there, any, is there anything going back through the years that's helped you back that up? Um, well, we, we looked at some really good da uh, data internally of, um, of when players um, broke down. Um, from a, this is from a game perspective. And, um, and certainly three, three, there was a trend of three out of those four variables were um, more than 10% um, out of their normal range um, for the previous for the previous week, um, we got to the point now where uh, we look at, look at data and we um, don't play players in some situations when we see that those variables um, are outside the limits that we're um, that we're comfortable with. So it's not one variable. Um, 
it's uh, from our data. It was you know it was three. It was three variables. So even if they're terrible in one variable, we watch it, observe it, but don't um, you know we don't necessarily act quickly at all if they're just down on one variable. Mm-hmm. And one other thing that I mean, you might be able to. You'll, well, you will definitely be able to educate me on this, is the, the sharing of data across the AFL. Is that something that is value to the clubs or is that more potentially from a commercial point of view? Do, do you care about what other people are doing? Um, I personally um, don't care <laughs> what, um, <laughs> what others are doing um, in the AFL industry and um, I haven't even looked at the data. Um, to be blunt, um, there are so many factors that, um, you know, that cause, you know, performance and, um, and how far they run and, you know, how fast they run and all those is one of those. But it's very specific to the playing group that you're working with. Um, I'm looking at, I'm looking at comparing our data to, you know, to our players. Um, we have some players that I, I want to run less. Um, in a game, they're more effective when they run less. I've got other players that are most effective when they cover a huge amount of ground. Other players, you know, I want them to cover less ground, but their intensity needs to be right up. So, um, for me, I'm I'm looking at data from our players, comparing our players, and then using that data to look at their fatigue levels post game um, as well to manage their you know their first three days post recovery. That if they have a genuine outlier of a game, that um, you know that we're aware of that, and and then we can manage them really smartly um, when they come off the park mm-hmm. that day. But so I'm not. I, I actually, I'm, I'm not sure so, if other clubs are even looking at it or not. To be honest, um, that's how little interest I've put into it. <laughs> cool. Um, and one thing, the next thing that I wanted to chat to you about came from your chat at leaders in um, in London. I've been really excited to uh, to hear a bit more about this and um you've been away in in camp this last week or two mm-hmm. and obviously this came up in conversation beforehand uh between us both and that was that throwing the science out the window and that yep. also came up and i think i've mentioned it in a couple of a couple of podcasts as well with the burnley manager over here in from the premiership mm-hmm. where one day out of the year he will just absolutely annihilate his players with no um, kind of thought of sports science and what's coming tomorrow, what came yesterday. It's just going for it. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about your perception of that and your thoughts on that? Because I know you uh, you brought that up with your in your chat with uh, with with Burjo on uh, at leaders. Yeah, well, and I maybe mean, a couple of examples. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about the environments we're in now, everything's monitored, everything's structured, everyone's putting their two bobs worth in. Um, you know, if you. Um, if you push them over the edge, then someone within your organisation or outside of that organisation will be critical of you. Um, there's a lot of conditioning guys operating from a position of fear. Um, they're fearful that the coach will be critical of them for either not pushing them hard enough or pushing them too far. They're fearful of the perception of others on the outside if they're not fit enough. Um, so they, so a lot of people just stick to the numbers. It's safe. Um, for people, you know, um, they have, you know, a magic number in their head about how far, how fast, number of X cells, D cells, these type of things in a training session. Um, you know, I, as I said, I'm interested in it. I look at it <clears throat> and um, it gives me a feel for the session. Um, 
but occasionally and it is pre-planned so it's not random in that we just push them to the limit um but because everything's so structured now these players often aren't really genuinely pushed to the limit where they do not know what's coming next um so I think in some ways we've bred we've bred um, softer athletes that aren't as mentally strong. And, um, you know, mental strength, what is mental strength? The mental strength is the ability to, um, you know, execute the task at the time that you need to execute whilst there are external factors trying to take you away from that task. Um, that can be fatigue is a huge one of those Um um, supporters, um, you know, internal stress and what's going on with the mind is a big one. Um, but we need to challenge that. And the only way to challenge that is um, predetermined um, that the players may or may not know. Sometimes they know it's coming and sometimes they don't know it's coming, but we know that it's coming and <laughs> we adjust, you know, we adjust the training leading into it and we adjust the training at the back end of it. Um, more so at the back end of it because when you're pushing these guys to the limit, um, you have to take a risk that you're going to lose one or two guys. Um, if you're not losing one or two guys or three guys in training sessions and um, you know within a training block you're not pushing them hard enough, you just hope that you don't lose your top two or three, <laughs> of course, within that. <laughs> but um, you have to put it out there and you have to – make people know within your organization that we have to lose people in our training or we're not pushing them hard enough. So, um, you know, so we were in New Zealand the other day and um, we did a 13-hour um, a thirteen hour hike. Um, we went, you know, we went from, you know, about 200 metres above sea level to about 2,000 metres above sea level um, and back down again, you know, we covered – you know, 45 to 50 Ks in the day, but up and down, up, you know, up and down serious mountains. Um, and what we did, um, if I had have taken anyone, um, any conditioning or medical person out there with me from another club or from a different environment, they would have said I was absolutely mad with what we got them to do with the extreme environment we were in. I've done this I've done this similar exercise four times now and every single time I get to the end of the day and the head coach and I say we're not doing it again, that was ridiculous. <laughs> we have completely lost the plot, exposed our players to stresses that we shouldn't do um, and every single time we've got through, we haven't lost a player, we've lost minimal time to training Um you know, maybe, you know, they might have added three or four days to, you know, for three or four players to their recovery. Um, but I tell you what, the players never, ever forget it. Um, and they talk about it for years. They tell stories about what happened during that day. There's a genuine emotion, emotional connection to it. And, and ultimately, they think, Rikies, if I got through that day, then I can get through another quarter of football. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good example of what we've done. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't do it, you know, you don't do it very often. Um, you need to be a little bit careful because, you know, resilience is specific to the environment that you want to become resilient in. Um, so there's not necessarily a correlation between walking up a mountain and being tough on the football field. Um, but the majority of guys, you see a good, you see a good trend there. 
Um, there's always some great themes that come out of it and, um, and the boys create, you know, stronger relationships at some level because of what they had to push each other through. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you do maybe in season or like more specific to football on been on the pitch to create that resilience, like you said? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, in, in terms of, um, you know, we, we certainly um, do – you know, a session towards the end of our, um, you know, each training block where we will probably overload them by about 20% on top of our biggest session that we ever do. Um, so that changes. It's very different um, depending on, you know, the time of the preseason. But we will, you know, we, we will genuinely overload them and add, you know, at least more than 20% load on top of our heavier session prior to that for that block, um, and then you know then obviously we need them we need them to recover well. Um, generally, on that occasion, the players know that something's coming that's heavy. Um, they're just not sure exactly what, and often the session just won't finish. Um, it certainly doesn't finish when they think it's going to finish. There's always we always add you know add more add a different stress. Um, but it's rare and it's rare because if you do it very often that they lose trust in you and uh, trust is such a critical component of an athlete's coach relationship and um, if they don't trust you and they don't trust the loads that you're going to do, um, you know, 95% of the time, then what will give way is effort. You know, they will simply reduce effort just to get through because they're never really sure what's coming next. Um, so it's pretty important you don't overdo that. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Andrew. I hope you enjoy part one. So in part two, we discuss uh, pre-season and what, what constitutes a successful pre-season for Hawthorne and some of the stuff that, um, that is tested in pre-season or not tested in, in some cases uh, by Andrew and his team uh, at the club. But just before we do get into part two, I just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So I had a couple of chats over Christmas with the guys at Fatigue Science and they're doing some really interesting stuff in the military and that is starting to carry over into the interest in in elite sport given that obviously things in the military are life and death. Um, Sport not so much but lessons can be learned from, from them industries, from different industries which are making the most of sleep tracking technology um, and pulling it into elite sport and how it kind of integrates um, into the kind of day-to-day workings of an elite environment. So if you are interested in learning more about fatigue science, what they can track, what they can't track and, and the services they provide, head over to fatiguescience.com or follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So thanks again for tuning in. would love your feedback as always and I will speak to you soon. Um, yeah, just moving into the preseason and obviously moving away from the stuff that went on in New Zealand. Um, what what's the kind of planning process for preseason? Um, kind of as a, as a blanket uh, block of time. Um, what does that look like? Who? What kind of stakeholders are you getting involved to actually plan what looks like and what what uh, what is a successful preseason? What makes a successful preseason? Um, well, a successful preseason for us. Uh, there's there's two figures that are absolutely become critical to us, and one is the percentage of load completed under sixty percent, and the other one is percentage of load completed over eighty uh, percent. 
in the last 17 years, the percentage of load completed over 80% has had no bearing on uh, how we have performed. But the one figure that has been really important is is the number of players who completed under 60% of preseason. And every single season at three, sing, at three different clubs, if we've had four players or less uh, complete under 60% of the preseason, we've finished in the top three um, in the competition. Wow. Um, and every year we haven't, we've finished – you know, anywhere from you know, you know, fifth to tenth. Um, so it says that you bat deep um, within a season. It says that it's the demands of the season are, are very high, and you need to play a large number of players. So for us, uh, you know, we have forty-five players in our list. We may bat down to thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven at some stages if we have a. A challenging injury run, and most teams will hit a challenging injury run at some stage, even for a, even if it's for a week within the season. It's very unusual. You go through a season and you don't hit a rough patch. Um, so the planning process um, is, uh, is is myself. Um, we you know have a head fitness coach who is heavily involved in the planning process. Um, I will gather thoughts from any single person in the football department about their thoughts before I start. So I'll put out a, a summary of the previous season and what worked well and what didn't. Then I will invite others to give their views. Um, and then myself, head fitness coach, um, the head coach, uh, will sit down and, um, and talk about the strategy and planning for the coming season. And, <clears throat> and then we'll, Bring in the uh, the guy who runs our skills training. Um, he will then be involved um, at the next level in terms of the specific planning of, of you know of the sessions. And I have a general plan over the whole preseason, but I don't actually plan the specifics more than three or four weeks ahead because things can change uh, so dramatically. So um, I go quite general, and then. Um, and then specific uh, three to four weeks out, and then uh, then we plan. Essentially, we plan the next week in detail, uh, and then right up until the training session, those details can change for a particular training session. It could be changing as we walk onto the training track. It could be changing, and then, as always, um, we are modifying within the session as well. Now, it's unusual that we modify within a session. Um, more often than not, it's taking load out, not putting load in. Um, but occasionally it is putting load in as well. If we don't get it quite right, our planning, then we're very, very flexible and we're very happy to sit there and between the head coach, I, um, and the coach who plans training, we're pretty much on the spot, come up with a decision and say, well, we actually didn't get as much load as we thought today. Uh, let's put a little bit more in. And, and I, I don't work to magic numbers within training sessions that we have to hit these magic numbers. Um I have a guide of what we're trying to get out of the session. Um, I want to get, you know, within ballpark of those figures, but, you know, it could be plus or minus 20% on those figures, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, it's really based on how the players are handling that session on that particular day. Um, if they're handling it particularly well and put a bit more in, if they're not, I'll take it out. Um, 
but also with a huge consideration of what the next three to five days look like as well. So sometimes if they're handling it particularly well, I won't put any more load in knowing um, that I'll adapt the rest of the week and put a bit of more load later in the week. So it's not just about that particular training day necessarily. Mm-hmm. Do they get? Do the lads know about them stats that you mentioned at the start? Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. So um, if someone goes down, everyone's kind of looking at each other. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's 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 the challenge in sport when you're dealing with humans and the psychology of it. I think the positive outweighs the negative in that if they know we're hitting those numbers, I mean, first of all, we need to say, well, are these numbers important for us or not? If they are, then I think the players need to know it um, because then their, their challenge is to live it and breathe it um, or live and breathe the things that they can control. Then our job is to manage the things that we can control well and between the two, between the players and the staff, we want to come up with a really good result and both parties can put the other, you know, the other party under a lot of pressure um, if they don't fulfil their end of the bargain. You know, we're very happy for players to challenge us if our planning is a bit off or our execution is off, um, and we're very happy to challenge the players if they don't uh, fulfil their end of the bargain as well. So, um, I think it's important that they know, and I think that when they do know and the numbers are good, then it just gives you so much confidence. Um, and the reality is, if you haven't done the work, you're in trouble anyway. So whether they know it or not, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you can't really <laughs> you can't really bullshit the situation. Um, it's just how much trouble you're in, and you just got to manage that. Yeah. So I was speaking to Justin at um, Essendon a couple of weeks ago, and he was we were talking about preseason. Well, I was talking about preseason with him, and he mentioned that over the over the years he's kind of changed his thinking towards preseason with. In, in the fact that he plans the off season better, so he can then start straight away in the preseason. Whereas before, it was probably less emphasis in the off season, and then gradually build up in the preseason. Is that something that's similar to you? Yeah, well, we, you know, I've always had very high standards in the off season with the players, and I've challenged them um, a fair bit in how they come back because we get straight back into it um, as of you know, probably 2011 um, because we had a couple of years. Uh, we won the premiership 2008. We had a couple of years where the players uh, didn't have a great off-season and they came back to the club behind. Um, so we had that experience to leverage off where they knew what a good off-season looked like um, and how that transferred into our pre-season then transferred into the real season. Um, and then they saw a couple of years where we struggled and then I could – work backwards and say, well, this is the reason we struggled. Um, so they bought into that completely. Um, I changed my approach in 2011 quite significantly um, when we were halfway through our pre-season and I, I'd been doing a very traditional, um, you know, more aerobic um, approach, you know, then putting in speed, power, you know, as we go towards the end of our pre-season. And I, I changed it quite significantly to more of a funnel approach, which um, a lot of people now are using. And certainly I I started this approach by looking at how the runner, you know, the middle distance runners around the world are training. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of guys, and one of them is Renato Canova, who uses this method where, you know, you do a lot of endurance early in the program, but you're also doing speed and power, you know, day one. You know, so the guys come back in, we're sprinting day one, we're jumping day one, we're doing high-level plyos day one. Um, 
we're all, and we're also starting to build up their endurance. Um, so we're hitting either end of the spectrum. And then as we get closer to the season, we funnel in close to the demands of the game. So uh, what I throw at them physically mirror um, mirror the game. So we're getting you know very much conditioned physically and conditioned psychologically for the for the season ahead. Mm-hmm. So if they're not doing the right thing in the off season, they're going to struggle straight away. It's going to be obvious. Struggle. They're going to struggle straight away. We make it look obvious. We make them stand yeah. out, um, and essentially we take them out of the program until they are ready. So so the all the players suffer because we've got less players in the program and certainly that individual player suffers. Um, so as soon as they do that once, um, they very, very rarely do it again um, because peer pressure is so strong, they just want to train with their mates. Um, so if you tell them that you're not going to be able to train with your mates if you don't do the work, then um, that changes their approach quite dramatically. So any standardised testing that you do? Start of pre-season, middle of pre-season, end of pre-season? Uh, we do a little bit of testing, but there's not a huge focus. Um, we do a 2.2K uh, run test, which is a just a mix of aerobic and anaerobic um, physiology. The reason we do that is very simple. You know, there was a 2.2K track when I was in Adelaide that we ran around as the distance happened to be exactly 2.2. So when I came to Hawthorne, I wanted to um, wanted to be able to compare time. So I created a, a track that was 2.2K. So nothing scientific about that at all. Um, Anything between 2K and 3K for me, it's just a good mix. Um, we also do an 11200 to test with our guys that aren't very aerobic um, because they're not very aerobic and they run around doing this aerobic running test and they don't do it very well. They certainly lose confidence um, and their training doesn't reflect the test anyway, so it's not really testing anything. Um, so we do 11200s off a minute. Um so if they run it in 45 seconds, they have 15 seconds rest, and then we come up with a total time. It's actually it's actually a tougher test than the straight aerobic run test. Um, but uh, we also the guys will do that test that may have a you know a specific injury history, maybe uh, maybe an Achilles tendon. Um, we don't want them to run around on the surface that the 2.2 is, so we'll run them on the grass, 11200s. Things like that. But we pretty much keep it consistent, and we do some um, basic strength testing in the gym as well, which is. Uh, all very, very good for motivation, but doesn't do anything much else for um, for telling you where they're at, really. It certainly doesn't tell you if they're ready to play a season of AFL football or whether they're actually getting stronger out the field or not. Um, it's really just a, a motivational tool. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, I know that you're – well, we're struggling for time because I know you have to shoot off, but last question from me, um, and I've, something I've been asking the last couple of guests that I've had on, the two, two most influential books – that you've read over your career? Doesn't have to be sports science, strength and conditioning, whatever it, you know, anything. Yeah, well, yeah, well, this, this, the first one is um, called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Joe Dispenza. Um, it's a fantastic read around, um, around the brain and also, um, as the name suggests, you know, habits, building habits, um, breaking habits, changing habits, um, because essentially that is our role. All of our role is um, identifying habits and then changing habits, and that's total life habits. We're not just talking about their habits. Their training. Obviously, their training habits are what we see, and it's obvious to us and it stands out to us, um, and that's the easy one. Uh, the harder ones are the, the life habits, guys. Um, 
are undertaking away from the football club. And um, so it's a fantastic understanding of that side of it. Um, the other one was Biology of Belief um, by Lipton. Um, again, a bit more sort of a holistic view of the universe and, how, you know, why we are the way we are and how we were built and... Um, so a little bit more, you know, not very, not very specific to sport and science at all. And just another one that I've been recently uh, reading, which has been very powerful, is uh, Why We Sleep by Walker. Um, I think uh, you know, I've had a very good understanding of sleep and why it's important, but it's taken my understanding to another level. Um, it covered so many aspects of our life um, about the power and the sleep, and it's certainly – and taking my understanding to another level because it is w- way more powerful than most of us um, in this injury in this industry give it give it credit. We all talk it, um, we all believe in it to some level, but um, there is so much more work to be done in this space. And and really, it just shows you if you if you provide the right conditions for the human body, it can do unbelievable things. Um, and the number one condition you need to provide the human human body is mind is undoubtedly sleep. That is the that is the building block, um, and then everything else is secondary from there. If you don't get that one right, you might as well not turn up and do the training. <laughs> Sweet, good place to finish. Right. You're not a so, you're not a social media guy, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. I've actually just started Instagram. Um, nice. Very, very exciting for me. Yeah, no, I'm trying to hide from the world. I've got enough. I've got enough going on. Um, yeah. But uh, no, no, I, I, I'm I'm going to get a bit more involved in social media. Do you know? But, um, do you know your Instagram handle? Uh, do you know your name on Instagram? I'm pretty sure it's Jack Russell EP. Nice. Get some followers. I think that's what my wife, uh, what my wife set up for me. <laughs> Class, uh, brilliant, excellent. Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and giving us your uh, giving us your time because I know you're a busy guy. So no I'll, I'll let you go, but thank you very much, mate. Yeah, great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to episode 170 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Andrew. So thank you to. Ian McKeough for making the introduction to Andrew and um, and talking it talking the podcast up to uh, to pressure him to come on for a chat. Also, thanks to Fatigue Science, Forstex, and Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really good guests, really interesting guests over the next couple of weeks. Uh, a couple from different backgrounds that I've never had on before. Um, so really interesting to uh, get different insight and different take keep things fresh on the podcast so thanks again for all your support and i will speak to you in episode 171